Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 16. We'll be there this morning for our study. We are in most likely the final days of what the Bible and Jesus called the Great Tribulation. This is a seven year period, really reverting back to a kind of Jewish time uh, that was promised by Daniel uh, these seven years. It's a time of judgment upon the earth. Uh, we believe that the church, those who know Christ now, will be raptured before this event, uh, as described for us in the book of 1 Thessalonians and other places. And so, uh, the world really is seen now the rise of someone called the Antichrist, the embodiment of Satan who's really coalescing the world in these terrible times around him. He is a Antichrist. He is a false hope, a false savior. He promises uh, salvation to the world and uh, help, but he, he does not deliver. In time, after the first two and a half years, his true color comes out and he declares himself God. And he ruthlessly, ruthlessly leads the world. God has rained down something called the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments. We are now in the midst of the bold judgments. Pronouncement has come, they fall in our text this morning. The end of the world as we know it is at hand. And this is what is described for us in Revelation chapter 16. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying, to the seven angels, go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial or bowl upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon men, which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. And it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy, for they deserve this judgment. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. So there is an Amen from heaven. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with the great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. That, that's amazing. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast. This is his government, his kingdom, his economy. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. And they blasphemed God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up. And that way the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, demons, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, that is Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, 
and out of the mouth of the false prophet. This is really making up the, the false trinity. And they are the spirits of the devils working miracles which go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, now there's a little bit of a parenthetical section here, a pause. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into the place called the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the great Babylon came into remembrance before God, to give unto her the cup of the wine of his fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. That's a hundred pounds. And men blasphemed God because of the plagues of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Our Heavenly Father, I, I pray the next few moments as we attempt, Lord, to comprehend, to take in, Lord, maybe even to imagine, Lord, this great day. Lord, the day that the Old Testament prophets have spoken about over and over, Lord, the, the eschaton, Lord, the second coming and these events that preceded. Lord, I pray that this would bring to us sobriety. And Lord, I pray to bring to us thankfulness for the grace of God and that, Lord, we will escape all these things. And I, I ask, Lord, that it would affect our hearts today in a real way. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. The Bible and the God who inspired it in this world are really the only true sources of hope that we have. The fallenness and depravity of man is a given today. And we see it in the daily news and in the history of the world. And really we see it in the witness of the brokenness of our own lives. Our life is an experience of sin and failure. There is beauty too, but we all know what sin is and the wickedness of the world. And the Bible and the salvation and redemption it offers is presented to us as that hope though from these things. And it, it is the means that we have to escape the wickedness of the world and really the sin of our own hearts and our own life. The Bible and God's Word is filled with its pages uh, and it offers comfort to us, it offers love, it offers peace and grace kindness, and God's goodness. In his pages we find reassurance. We find out how to have joy, how to live wise lives, how to hope and know that a better day is coming in the coming kingdom of God. But this book also contains judgment and the wrath of God. It contains a warning of God's coming great day, of His vengeance upon all that that is evil and wicked, the reality of hell, and the consequences for all those who choose sin and unbelief. The Bible tells us that our God is holy, holy, holy. And 
if God is in fact holy, if He is righteous and He is just and He is all those things, then of necessity the God who loves righteousness must hate iniquity and sin. Our God loves truth. Therefore, He must, by His nature of holiness, abhor lies. He upholds goodness and He eschews evil. He rewards and offers salvation. And He rejects men and their sin and judgment and condemnation. The world that we live in today is obviously a moral world. No matter who you are on a political or, or, or any other philosophical spectrum, everyone believes in some kind of morality or the way that the world works. The chapter of Revelation that we are ready, reading today uh, describes the outworking of God's morality. And it gives a graphic description of God's coming judgment upon humanity. This judgment was echoed over and over by the Old Testament prophets. I've read from these texts numerous times, both in our study in Sunday morning and through the minor prophets on Wednesday night. Joel, Isaiah, Malachi, Zechariah, and others. John the Baptist in the New Testament, the forerunner of Christ, confronted their generations with their sin. They declared the judgment of God coming upon all that is evil, all that is sin, all those who reject God. Jesus uh, really spoke about himself and John before him. There were men who came to John the Baptist for baptism, and his, his, this was his words to them. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. And he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, salvation, and whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. And then this phrase, but he will burn up the chaff, those who are sinful, this wicked world with unquenchable fire. John 3:36, he that believeth on the Son, you have everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, the reality of God's holiness, the reality of our violation of that holiness will abide upon him. God's wrath is upon all those who reject him. And we see this wrath in its full fury in the tribulation. I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10 with me very quickly. We've discussed this text a number of times in our study. Because I want us to, to understand that God is holy, that God is right, that God is just. These, these plagues, these judgments, these bowls of wrath seem difficult for us and almost unfathomable. But it is coming because of a rejection of goodness and a rejection of grace and a rejection of love. And the Bible says in verse 26 of Hebrews 10, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. Now let me just stop there for a moment and say, this is not a text talking about those who are saved who then live in perfect lives. These are people who've lived under the sound of the teaching of the gospel, have heard God's offer of salvation and who have rejected it. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. 
God has done all He can do to lead you to repentance. God has done everything He can to help you escape the wrath of God by punishing the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for our behalf. God's wrath either falls here or it has fallen there. And it has done so in equal severity. And so God offers us salvation through the provision of His Son. And if we reject that while we live on this earth, God says this, there remaineth no more sacrifice. There's no more alternatives. There's, there's no other means for salvation. Verse 27, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment of the fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now listen to how God takes this personal. Oh, how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy the same idea we see in our text. They deserve this. It's worthy. Who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. God has been long-suffering. God has been merciful. God is patient. He calls out to us. The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. We know the truth in our hearts. And, and we have a choice. We can either accept God's offer of salvation or we can reject it. And if we reject it, we are trotting under feet the blood of Christ. This incredible offer of grace and love. For we know Him that hath said... Vengeance belongeth unto me, and I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge His people. It is a fearful, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In this lifetime, you and I have a choice. Even through much of the tribulation, people had a choice. There were the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who shared the gospel. Elijah and Moses, or the two witnesses, came and declared the truth of God's gospel. At the very end, the very angel himself uh, crossed the atmosphere of the sky and declared the gospel. And for those then who would not receive it, chapter 16 comes. In view of Revelation 16... We see the end of the tribulation. It is the end of God's wrath. It is the end of human history. It is the end of the world as it is now. We see seven rapid fire successive judgments that come from the temple of heaven itself. Now empty of all entities other than God himself during this period of wrath. This wrath is administered upon the earth by these seven angels during earth's final hours. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we call the eschaton, the second coming, the second advent, is imminent. And it immediately follows these bold judgments, these vile judgments that we read about today. In the view of God, at this point, it is done. It has started, so it is finished. This is what Jesus said, it is finished, it is done. In the same view, God is here. These acts are unfolding, but nothing can stop this, so it is finished. These judgments occur in immediate succession. They are only briefly interrupted by comment, first from an angel, who then another angel amends it, or God himself maybe from the temple. And there's a second warning to those who may still be believers upon the earth to be faithful and endure. The seven plagues are the last. And they are also the most severe manifestations of God's wrath upon the sinful world. These, I'm not going to do this today, but they hint at the plagues of Egypt. The first four bear striking similarity. Of course, we know that Egypt is a type of the world. 
Pharaoh was a type of the Antichrist. Of course, God judged them in, these, in, in, in the plagues then. Here the world, the Antichrist present, will be judged in many of the same ways. And so let's begin our text and our study very quickly, beginning in verse number 1. The text begins with a, vo a great voice coming out of the temple, now vacated by the seven angels, filled with this dark smoke and the glory of God. So intense is God's wrath that we learn in chapter 15, no one could be there but God Himself. And, and issuing from this temple is the command to the seven angels that we studied last week to carry forth these seven bowls or seven vials from the altar of God and they are to be poured out upon the earth. Now this is an earth that has already seen incredible devastation. More than one-third of humanity has already suffered and died through the seal and the trumpet judgments. Yet the world still embraces the deception, the great lie, the Antichrist. There are those who think, you know, well, if I miss the rapture, if I miss this, and if I go into the tribulation, then I'll just accept God, and maybe you will, and maybe you won't. There will be an incredible deception and an incredible delusion. And the Bible says in, in, in the book of Matthew 24, even so much so that maybe even believers themselves can be deceived. At the same time that these miracles are ongoing, Satan and his evil workers are working miracles as well. It will be a confusing world. But we see in our text that evil has run its course, but so too is the wrath of God. So in 62, we see the first bowl. Again, reminiscent of the Egyptian plague, God unleashes a devastating disease upon the earth. And it is a selective disease, for it affects every soul that has aligned itself with the Antichrist, with the number of his name, or more probably adeptly said, it affects anyone who has not trusted Christ as Savior. The manifestations are boils. And, it, and this chapter is graphic in all of its details. These are ulcerations, open, painful wounds, infected, supernaturally inflamed to bring excruciating pain. Reminiscent of maybe what uh, Job suffered at the hands of Satan, um, sort of what the Egyptians experienced during their time. But supernaturally, the believers will be immune, just as they were during the Egyptian plagues, as God makes a promise to keep His own. In 16.3, we see the second bowl is poured out specifically upon the sea. And the oceans in this plague congeal as though they were blood. They coagulate so that life cannot survive either literally or biologically, like maybe a red tide gone crazy. The outcome is the same. All life within the waters die. There's no longer uh, any hydrological cycle. The waters no longer can evaporate the way they did. That means that two things stop. Rain no longer can fall and wind no longer exists. It is the, the oceans that create the wind that are driven by the water. And so now you have a silent and still world in utter misery, no wind, silence in a way that the world has never experienced as the waters of the world turn to blood. And this is done as a reminder uh, to those who are living at that time who had served the Antichrist. They have spilled the blood of the saints who accepted Christ in the tribulation. Going back, they've spilled the blood of, the, of, of all of history's martyrs, of, of, of the prophets. And so it is judgment. 
and the earth grows quiet. The third bowl is similar. He poured out upon the rivers, upon the world, for whatever fresh water remains is now turned to blood on a planet-wide scale. This is larger than the seal of the trumpet judgments. And that means there's no more water. Okay, the, actual, the natural outworking of that is lest there are some stored, humanity has days, literally days to survive. Sustaining life is now impossible. Mankind's time is short. So severe are the implications of these plagues, so miserable and so daunting are they that this angel just stops and he just, he pauses and he sees this unspeakable condition of the planet, the misery of mankind, the a planet now red, not blue, the wind has stopped, the, the skies are still, humanity suffering, and he says, you know, and maybe a, a summary, you had a chance. You had a chance. These are people who lived, for the most part, before the tribulation. They had a chance. These are people who listened to 144,000. They had a chance. These are the people worldwide who listened to the two witnesses. They had a chance. It's, 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 the, it's the fact that the angel from heaven flew across the sky with the incredible gospel. They had a chance. And through all this love and all this grace and all this long suffering, they denied God. They had a chance. And so God is being true to his nature of being holy. He is righteous and just. And this wrath is deserved. And the voice from the altar says basically, Amen. The fourth bowl now is poured upon the sun. Since the beginning of time, the sun has stayed its course. That's amazing when you consider the universe. It has operated and functioned at God's direction. It's given light, it's given warmth, it's given life. Now, at the order of God, it inflames into a massive solar flare, a mini nova, and the sun's atmosphere leaps from its normal boundaries, and the Bible tells us that it scorches the earth. Um, I'm fair complexed that I've had a sunburn or two, but I've never been scorched like this. Whatever water would be left upon the planet would be evaporated. The ice caps melt. Plant life dies. And humanity is burned. Something akin to atomic radiation. It's unimaginable. It's unfathomable. And suffering uh, on an exponential scale ensues. There's a lesson. I'll get back to this in a moment. To consider Humanity doesn't repent. There, there's just something incredibly stubborn about the human heart. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Humanity doesn't repent, but curses God. You know, that's just consistent with the way we live life. There are people on their deathbed, you think, man, at the very end they're going to turn to God, but most people don't. You see, a hardened heart really has no hope. I, and I, and I, it's not the scope of the sermon today, but you know, even Christians, they, they're not going to lose salvation, but a hardened heart is just really hard to work with. It's hard to do. And we let our hearts, we're, just, we're destined for bitterness and uh, you know, self-inflicted wrath. And a 
point to consider. We can become blind and irrational in sin. And that condition exists today. The fifth bowl is poured out. Now the angel pours out God's wrath upon the political, economic, and religious kingdom of the Antichrist itself. This is the destruction of the Antichrist. His world, now engulfed in pain, turns dark. This is not just darkness. If we even use what happened in Egypt as an example, it was a palpable darkness. It was a, it was a darkness that you felt that was upon you. It was so dark that in the same room one person could not see another. If you haven't got this just yet, this is hell on earth. Scorching, sores, pain, darkness. What is hell? It is the absence of God. It is the absence of goodness. It is the absence of hope. Hell, for the moment, has come to earth. And by the way, that's what Christ took for us on the cross. The sixth bowl falls. It's a preparatory bowl that makes a path for the seventh plague. It's a spiritual plague accompanied by a physical miracle. You see, the scorching heat dries up the river Euphrates. Matter of fact, most of the rivers would have been dried up. And this, of course, we'll learn in a moment, makes a way for the armies to gather in Armageddon geographically. At the same time, and this is a demonic scene, we have, we have the serpent, which we know is Satan. We have the beast, the Antichrist, and we have the false prophet who've been doing miracles this whole time. And now emanating from their command, from their voice, it's seen figuratively in frogs, which the book of Leviticus tells us that frogs are unclean. Jews saw them as something very vile. And they're demons that issue forth their command, and it goes throughout the whole world, deceiving the world, and still believing the Antichrist has some power, has some hope, and brings all the armies of the world gathered together to what is called Armageddon, this place outside Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire, great vast valley where the Bible says the armies of the world will be assembled. And they're done so there through the deception of Satan, really by the will of God. And then we were to learn in time that God in His wrath will destroy, there's no battle of Armageddon, there is a decimation at Armageddon as He annihilates the kings and their wickedness. I don't understand why these all gather here. And these, these armies gather in some form of deception. It may be because the Antichrist kingdom is falling. They gather there to fight him. It could be they're coming to fight with him against Jerusalem in an anti-Semitic um, last stand. It could be, I mean, you got to realize Satan has been believing a lie since the very initial time when he fell from heaven, believing he could usurp God. Maybe he believes that if, if all the might of humanity is gathered together, they can fight the second return of Christ. No matter what, it is delusion that gathers them there. The mountain of Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo, is the place where many battles were fought in ancient Israel. And it's a place where there will be a war again. Now made accessible to the kings of the east. I don't know who that would be. It could be the Asian countries. It could be Iraq and Iran. It could be the Middle East, which might make more sense. It's so overwhelming are these events. Once again, there is a break. And John, maybe through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks at his people. You know, the seven ages of church of mine are here going through a hard time and thinking the people this day are going to need encouragement. He says, be faithful, be true. Christ is coming back. Now, you've got to get the context here. If you were living through this, 
if you survived the martyrdom, if you survived all this, you're thinking, this is utter annihilation, this is chaos, this is confusion. And, and, and John reminds them, Jesus is coming back. It's like a thief, it's going to be quick, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be decisive. At, at the end, when you think all is lost, he's going to come back. So he, he breaks this interlude of absolute terror and says, Christ is coming back. These are words that are meant to be of encouragement, to be faithful and true, to endure to the end. The, this, the single phrase, I come. I'm coming. It doesn't look like it, but I'm coming. And he, and he will. We'll see in a moment. So keep your colors. Don't dip your colors. Be true. So the seventh angel then acts, and he pours out his vial upon the world in the air. This is the final act upon God's current created order. As this was done, all the prayers of God's people over the centuries, all the martyrs and the saints of the, at the altar there in the temple of heaven, all the prophets' proclamations come true. All the voice of the martyrs under the altar and from the heaven, they all shout, it is done. Finally, it is done. The great day of the Lord and His mighty wrath in these events and now His actual coming, it's done. It's here. Now, I'm lending some, some thoughts here. The Bible simply says there's voices heard from heaven. I imagine at this point the angels are all pretty excited. And they're shouting and they're singing. Can you imagine what it might be like if all the angels shouted in such a way we could hear it right now? All the living creatures, the seraphim, the cherubim, these unimaginably powerful creatures shout. The 24 elders shout, sing. I kind of think we're going to be there and shouting too. It's going to be something like the world has never heard before. And they shout, we shout. We shout, may we sing. The world is covered now in thundering and lightning, reverberating in such a way that the earth, you know, maybe like a glass with a high soprano voice would, it begins to shake. And, and, and earth now endures a Earthquake. The Bible says since mankind has been upon it. And remember, there's been some pretty severe earthquakes. Once upon a time, this earth was all one. In the days of Peleg, it was divided. That's a pretty significant earthquake. This is bigger. It does just the opposite. Rather than upheaving mountains, it brings them down low. It shakes the world. The greatest, most comprehensive, geographical, world-altering event transpires. It is mighty. It is great. And then hail begins to fall. The largest recorded hail that's ever been recorded is almost um, three pounds. These are stones of hail that, of course, are meant to display the judgment and wrath of God. And um, almost three feet across, hail's very dense, and uh, 100 pounds. If it hits close to you, you die. But, but this is also planet re-engineering. This is catastrophic. This is not just meant to hurt people. It is meant to alter this world and this earth. Um, whatever earthquake is there, this is going to magnify it 
tenfold. This shatters humanity and the landscape as the world is pulverized. Creation itself, I, this is just the author's attempt, so intense is this moment of wrath upon the earth, the Bible says that creation itself tries to flee from the presence of God. It's a moment of terror, the Bible says, as God remembers. I'm really thankful God remembers, you know, our good. He rewards our labor. In this moment, God's remembering something. He's remembering Satan and his rebellion. He's remembering the angels that fell. He's remembering the deception of mankind. He's remembering every evil thing that's ever fallen or happened on the planet. He's mad. He's angry. It's wrath. It's righteous. Can you imagine if, if in a moment everything was ever evil in the world came to you? And he remembers. He remembers what happened on the cross. He remembers the hell that his son went through. He remembers the offer that went out to humanity throughout history and how it was mostly rejected. He remembers. He remembers all this stuff. And God's fury and his wrath and his holy righteousness is rained down literally from heaven upon this earth and it shakes and it's violently reformed. And then something really incredible happens. The Bible says that the great city is divided into three parts. An opinion, not a truth. An opinion. Some commentators believe that that is Babylon the Great being divided, describing a further destruction of the Roman, revised Roman Empire led by the Antichrist. Um, that's a valid opinion, I think. Um, but I have a different one for what it's worth. I believe it's a reference to the real great city, no sarcasm, the great city of Jerusalem. You see, the seventh bowl brings with it a cataclysmic, catastrophic impact upon the globe that utterly destroys the world. But just as God's judgment of necessity uh, comes upon the world before His second coming, this seventh, in other words, something bad before the good happens. This seventh final judgment will begin to reshape, reshape the world for the coming millennial kingdom. Matter of fact, this event is going to reshape the world into how it was before the flood. You see, mountains didn't exist before the flood. Barriers didn't exist before the flood. Humanity was a gentle, rolling, perfect place for mankind to fellowship, but that was destroyed in man's sin. Mountains were upheaved in this re, in this. Uh, catastrophic event of the flood, and God's taking all that away. While He destroys the world, He's making it and renew again in the way He intended for it to be. The effects of the earthquake will be to split the city of Jerusalem, in my opinion, into three parts. As part of the ge geophysical alterations of the coming world, don't do it now while I'm talking, but Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 through 10. 
describes these changes in specific detail. Zechariah 14. The Mount of Olives will be split in two, creating a new valley that will flow um, east and west. This will allow water to flow. This is so amazing. Year-round from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean and to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea, if you've ever been there, is quite salty and dead. Will be transformed into a new Garden of Eden. Fresh water will flow into it. It'll become a, the, a beautiful place as God originally intended. It will blossom like a rose in the wilderness. Jerusalem will be elevated uh, from the planet. In this splitting of parts, the city itself will be elevated and most likely will be the highest point on the planet after this cataclysmic event. The lands now will be made accessible. And we are now prepared for the return of Christ and the millennial reign. All that remains is the actual physical return of Christ, which is about to occur. All of this judgment is like a watershed moment on humanity. The wrath falling upon the wicked in that even in these horrible events, the world being made ready for the grace of God for eternity. The wicked are highlighted in verses 6 and 9. The blessed in verse number 15. Obviously, one of the overarching intentions of a text like this is not only to inform us of God's righteousness and His wrath and future plans, but for these truths to impact my life today and to move me into a relationship with God if I do not have one, and if I have one, to make sure that stays true and unstained, as the text says. Okay, now, this is... This, all that is for this short teaching moment. But as our text points out, okay, eyes up here just for a second. Relatively few people are moved to a right position by pain and suffering. You can change the direction, but not their heart. I mean, a lot of us know this for our own kids, right? You can spank them. It'll change their direction. It may help their character, but the heart's another issue. Pain and suffering are effective tools in correcting those who already know the Lord. But they are poor mechanisms for changing the heart. Instead, people who don't know the Lord, who go through pain and suffering, simply fall into a greater hardness and bitterness. Is that not true? They curse God in their sufferings. That happens today. Not just then. This is the tendency of humanity today. If we are not careful as God's people, as we are told to be warned about in the book of Hebrews, we need to be careful that our hearts don't become so hard that we become bitter inside. So what's the point? If you're here today, if you're here today, you're on the sound of my voice, you will most likely never be in a better spiritual place to accept the Lord as Savior than you are right now. Because this world's not easy. It's mean and it's unkind. Now, I know maybe the majority of people here are saved, but I'm gonna, I almost can guarantee it, you, will, you may not ever be in a better spiritual place to accept the Lord as Savior than you are right now. Because the hardship of life has a way of beating down on people. Fewer people are saved in life with every passing year as they age. 
you're probably as receptive as you are ever going to be. As life beleaguers us more and more, the chances of your heart will grow harder and harder. And that's even something that the saints of God have to work on. Let me suggest something. Let me suggest something other than God's wrath to keep you out of hell. You know, hellfire, brimstone preaching, it's okay. It's appropriate, Revelation 16. I don't know how many people are saved through that. I think it's appropriate. You know what changes people? The Bible says the goodness of God leads us to repentance. It's not God's wrath. It's His love. It's not the evil. It's His goodness. And if you can't see it, that is so sad. You can't. The rod is for the back of a fool. It doesn't change a fool. It just keeps him in line. O despisest thou the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? One of my very favorite stories in the whole Bible is found in Luke 7. There's this lady who pours out her love on Christ when the religious people wouldn't. And Jesus said, Wherefore I say unto thee that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. What's he saying? It's not that she had more sins than anybody else, and so was forgiven more. It's just that she saw all of her sins. She saw it. She looked in the mirror and said, I am that. And it's because she saw that she was given salvation and forgiveness. You don't need any more to beat you up than your own life to turn you to Christ. Who here hasn't failed? Who here hasn't been a horrible person? Who here doesn't need Christ? And today he offers that in his goodness and his grace. A stick won't move you to heaven, but grace and that might. My kids don't love me because I've been mean to them. They love me because I love them. And they've recognized it. And so in some part they're here. You know, not because of the spankings they received, which were many. <laughs> They're here because I, they I love them. I'm going I'm to take care of Terry and love her, not because she'll kill me at nighttime if I don't. <laughs> she loves me. It's enough for me. That, that'll move me, it changed me. You see, for God so loved the world, it's you, that He gave. He endured all this so you wouldn't have to. And if that won't move you to repentance, if that won't cause you to avoid this, then you're despising the goodness of God. There's no hope for you.
in our lives. This world's evil, it's wicked, it's bad, it's horrible. I hate so much of it. But there's beauty. There's goodness. God's made it evident. If you could just stop for a moment and perceive the goodness of God in this world and to you personally and through the cross, how could you not be saved? More than that, how could you not serve Him? For those who can see it, appreciate it, understand it, and accept it. For you, God's wrath has already come. You should do something with the grace He's given in exchange. And if not, a fearful, horrible future awaits. Not just here, but for eternity. Let me ask you to stand if you would.